<laughs> and none of y'all motherfuckers got any use value. So, first question, Steven. Yep. What's the difference between a criminal and a crimesman? Criminal and a crimesman? Uh, I don't know. Um, criminal uh, is a person that commits crime, and crimesman is some sort of DC Comics supervillain, I guess. Um, <laughs> the crimesman. It's a it's a it's a word you used in the last time you, you crimesman. You you said, yeah, you, you said white collar crimesman, and then just moved on like you didn't notice it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't notice it when we recorded it. And then afterwards, I was like, "What in the fuck is a crimesman?" <laughs> I, I, I can't remember using that word. Um, that would be a new one for me. It's, it's badass though, because now you you made it a word. Because I bet you anything that like people that were listening to that episode are like, it's, oh, this is all you guys are pretty smart. And he said crimesmen, so I guess that's a real word. I'm start it's reserved strictly like a, for like bougie-ass crimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're officially a lefty intellectual now because you've invented a term for something that already exists. <laughs> <laughs> all right, starting up, everyone shut up. The judicial system is a legitimizing agent that reaffirms existing social inequalities and perpetuates class contradictions by applying laws that are purported to be neutral, but are actually quite unequal and biased in their origin and application. Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. And I'm Jenny. And we have with us again for the second time, Stephen. How's it going, Stephen? Hey, what's happening? So, Stephen, you are our first return guest. Brilliant. Yeah, so you should get some kind of special award for that. We should make you a t-shirt. I'd like that. We brought Stephen on again to talk about the law some more. Last time we had to cut our discussion short, and we didn't get to talk about two of the shittiest parts of the law, the the courts and corrections. So we're going to go ahead and get into that a little bit today. And we're also going to talk about some other stuff if we have time. But anyway. So, Stephen, how's the law been, man? The law's bad, man. It's all bad. You wake up and it's just bad. So, like, <laughs> uh, I, I, did, I, I did try a case in federal court last week and, and got an acquittal. On nice. A, uh, Congrats. On a, nice. On a protester case. And so that was cool. Hey. Um but other than that, man, it's just all bad. You wake up, Kavanaugh's still on the Supreme Court. Uh, we don't have that, you know, that uh, Gramscian Merrick Garland, you know, anywhere near the Supreme Court for us to us oh, to get Comrade on. Comrade Garland, we and noted know, Leninist. Every every day you wake up and he's not there, and you have to look at these other bad guys, um, and they're there forever. Uh, and RBG keeps like falling in like a vat of you know vaseline or something and can't get out and and we don't know if she's going to live through you know the week so everybody's just waiting for like the next ghoul that's going to come in and replace her she's Um, like she's like rasputin man she'll be there for a while i don't i wouldn't wager on it man yeah i don't know our luck is not good but but we'll see but yeah other than that things are terrible yeah Everything pretty much fucking sucks everywhere. (laughs) It's more or less the basis of this podcast.
All right, man. I want to make. I just want to like define some terms. Whenever we say criminal justice system, we're gonna say the k k criminal injustice system. America, of the, yeah, of the United Snakes of America, but it's like cis, like cisgendered, but cis stem. And yes, exactly. And snakes has a dollar sign for an S. Yeah, exactly. I did all of this I, I in a PowerPoint it. presentation my sophomore year of high school um, in a speech class. It was, it was a mood. Yeah. So that's that's how we're going to be talking about this moving forward. But okay, so Stephen, you provided us with a pretty kick-ass little introduction to Marxism and law, and we linked that in the show notes last time. And I believe we'll still be able to do that again. So if anybody likes this episode, you should go back and listen to the episode previous. You don't have to listen to that episode to listen to this one, but you should definitely uh, do it anyway because it's a really good episode. But in your article, you talk about the court system in the United States well, so so the the courts are the courts are bad. They're set up to do uh, one thing, and that's protect the interests of the people who created the laws that that they're there to to uh, to to enforce, basically. And so you have two different you know um, avenues that you that you are, that you're heading down whenever you go to the courthouse. Um, in in most places, it's a single courthouse and a single judge, and and that's your only avenue. And he's going to hear both civil. Uh, type cases and criminal type cases in other larger metropolitan areas you have judges that specialize just in criminal cases and judges that handle only civil cases and so depending on on what you're there to accomplish you're either there to try and avoid going to prison or going to jail or you're there because you're trying to get money that's the civil side and money is in the form of uh, a, a, a personal injury lawsuit, uh, money in the form of trying to enforce a contract, money in the form of trying to get an inheritance through probate, money in the form of trying to get um, your community interest in your partner's property in a divorce. Uh, in the criminal courts, you're not really worried about money other than the money that you might owe if you end up uh, on probation or end up convicted. You're primarily worried about, I really don't want to go to to to, to prison or jail, whatever the whatever the depending on the nature and, and gravity of the offense. And so the the court's primary job, what they'll tell you, is that their goal is to be uh, the referee. A common phrase that you'll hear from judges whenever trial starts, uh, we, anytime a trial starts, they bring in this big panel of people that we call a jury panel or a veneer. And, uh, and we talk to them and we ask them questions. And the judge always starts first and gives sort of like an introduction. And one of the classic phrases that you'll hear a judge say in that introductory part is, I'm the referee, I'm the one that calls balls and strikes. So whenever there's a dispute over the application of, of a law or whether a party can do a certain thing in this trial, I'm the person that adjudicates that, um, that dispute. And so that's that's more or less what they believe their role is. In reality, what you have is, particularly in a criminal court, is you have a set of prosecutors that are assigned specifically to that court that interact with that judge every day, 
all day. And then you have defense attorneys who wander in and out of that courtroom as, you know, as, according to like on a per diem basis, depending on whether or not they have a case set there that day. And so just sort of a natural consequence of, of interaction is that um, relationships develop between the judge and between the prosecutor. And that gets compounded by the idea that at some point you have to go, you may have to go to that judge to determine a, uh, a sentence of some kind. And so it becomes very difficult for a judge, as you can imagine, to um, whether they're willing to admit it or not, be completely impartial in the way they make their decisions because as just as a matter of consequence, they gain a relationship with one half of the parties that's appearing in front of them all the time. Of course, judges also campaign what, because in Texas, at least it's, it's an elected position and it's, and it's associated with, um, with parties. And so judges campaign on things like being tough on crime, uh, which signals to the community that they're going to be high sentencers, things like that. Uh, for instance, you have um, in San Antonio, where I live, you, we have two um, misdemeanor family violence courts that are specialty courts. And both judges campaign on, we're here to, to stop family violence. That, that's our job. We, we want to stop family violence, which is, which is a, a good goal. But it feels strange to hear a judge say that because it's not, you don't, you're not hearing about a judge, you never hear a judge campaign on the idea that, we're here to protect, you know, innocent people. We're here to make sure that, that, you know, this guy's not going to prison anymore because, you know, we're not going to take the cop's word for it that his car smelled like weed, which justified the, the, the search of his motor vehicle. Nobody campaigns on that stuff. Um, so right out of the gate, the judges and, and, uh, and, you know, hashtag not all judges, but, uh, most judges do talk in terms of this kind of tough on crime. We're here to to um, be some sort of rectifying agent against this criminal class that keeps coming into the courthouse. Does that make sense? Yeah. it's Anytime I, I talk to you about the law, I'm always just floored by how similar it is to the medieval setup of law and how little <laughs> things have changed. The the way that medieval law worked is that the medieval courts worked is that uh, the judge was generally a lord that sat in adjudication over disputes. And essentially what would happen was both sides would present their cases and the judge would, you know, or the, the lord would rule on it. And he didn't have to have any kind of, you know, knowledge of the law or anything like that. But you could bring your lawyer in, so it would be up to your lawyer to sort of like wow the Lord with, uh, you know, his arguments. And of course, the Lord would naturally see the lawyer as just some up-jumped bourgeois piece of shit that was like, you know, trying to talk to him like he deserved to. And uh, yeah, it it's it it seems to me like that there is a uh, very little has changed in the power relations of the court system from the middle ages to now and actually not a whole lot has changed in the in the creation of laws either especially in the in the in our system which is based on the english common law system where we've got precedents going all the way back to like you know the ninth century and before 
I mean, that was the first really good century, you know. <laughs> the, the first non-regrettable century. Yeah, eighth century <laughs> precedents are pretty bogus, though. Well, well, so and the 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 idea of of determining a resolution in a criminal court is the 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 sort of founding principle was um, retributive justice. It was that right. eye for an eye, you know, trying to um, get the the equal value of of what was taken from from me, whether it's in terms of uh, bodily injury or financial loss or loss of property or, or, or whatever, it's trying to determine the equivalent punishment that can be inflicted on this, on this other person. So, so if we think of, if we think of, um, of our sort of criminal justice system as trying to determine um, what the, how to, uh, trying to quantify what is the value of this um, bad act in terms of quantified in terms of time or in terms of in terms of money and that and then the same thing happens on the civil side is is you know you get in a car accident and you break your leg how do you quantify the value of a broken leg well there's a lot of ways that they do it and one of the ways is um, not just pain and suffering because it's really difficult to pay, to quantify pain and suffering the easier way that they do it is they quantify it based on your loss of future earning capacity and so they figure out you know how many days of work that you missed how many days of work you're likely to miss in the future how much money you're not going to be able to earn as a result of this injury or disfigurement and then they they put a price on that and then that's what the you know the if in theory if they have the ability to or, or if they have insurance that person then pays in the criminal courts we call that restitution so if I get in a car accident with somebody and I'm drunk and I don't have insurance that, and I end up getting placed on probation, then the value of that accident is going to be assessed against me as a condition of probation in the form of restitution. So we're still trying to figure out um, what the equivalent value of the, of that um, initial wrong was in, in, in every aspect. So we're still trying to determine the Weregeld, then. Sure. Which is, which is what the uh, Anglo-Saxon price for a human life would be. That was determined by their worth in society. And if you killed somebody, you had to pay the Weregeld. So, like, socialist jurisprudence would be based on the idea that somebody who was, like, a banker would have no value to society. <laughs> uh so, I mean, uh, it's not necessarily their value to society. It's their value to the wronged party. Um, and, and so Pashikani talks about this uh, a bit in his general theory of law and Marxism. But he talks about how there's no such thing as as society as a whole or, or society. There's 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 Whoa. there's there's two classes. Sounds like Margaret and, Thatcher. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I've heard that before. There's there's two classes and and they're at war with one another. And you have this law that is set out to protect the interests of one class over the other. And so this idealized society where everybody walks into the courtroom as equal parties, that only exists in our imagination. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, having having been inside of a court before um, as one of those parties, I definitely got to say it's not in my imagination anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but luckily I knew some uh, uppity, you know, bourgeois lawyer. And so uh, I sit before you today. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. A free man, I, we, kind of. Yeah, we, not, not exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, so I'm interested in the idea of because I, I, I struggle with this sort of internally, and I know Kevin has too, and and maybe he can talk about it. But I mean, so I am a private practitioner. I, I do own my own business, but I, I can't Uh-oh. think of, I can't think of myself as as bourgeois. Um, because well, just little bourgeois, petty, well, I mean, petty bourgeois, petty, petty bourgeois, right? But in the sense that I own my business, but when I go into the courtroom, other than my, you know, understanding of the law, I don't have any control in the in the in the outcomes. So if if I own if I own a Starbucks, I can control whether or not the the product is good and is going to satisfy it is going to satisfy people. And then I can also figure out the way to make that product the best I can while um, exploiting the most value, the, the most you know, uh, labor I can out of somebody uh, in exchange for the least amount of cost to them. I don't really have that in my practice because the only person I'm taking labor value from is my, myself. So it's, it's strange. I, and and I think a lot of criminal defense lawyers will tell you that it, I rarely feel like I'm my own boss. Um, I tend to feel like one, I'm I'm working for the client, uh, and two, I'm working for the judge. Those are the people that kind of set my schedule. Those are the people that make my decisions. Those are the people that you know determine whether or not I have you know the money to eat. So I I feel weird thinking of of lawyers in as as bourgeois particularly um in the criminal defense context just i mean most of my cases are are appointed by the by the court uh which so if you cut if you come into bear county and pick up a dwi and have to get an attorney appointed to your case that attorney is going to get paid 180 dollars so when i when i think of sort of the idealized bourgeoisie and the idealized proletariat um i don't think of i i I typically don't think of the bourgeoisie as laboring uh, for 180 bucks on the on a dwi case that makes sense we're all (laughs) declassé petty bourgeoisie (laughs) yeah Um, i mean the the your relationship to you know uh the relations of production um i was going to say your relationship to the means of production but even just you know in in the broadest sense of like what it is that you control you still control uh your practice you still own it you you only show up because you you know sure you have to but not because you'll get fired right but because you won't have clients and then you could bring yourself to ruin i mean they're bad capitalists or unfortunate capitalists who you know tumble down the ranks but they uh I used to work for one. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one. I uh, I briefly worked for him as well. But yeah, um, it, I mean, it, it the the very first thought that I had when it, when you were describing all of the the peculiarities of your position is it made me wonder about um, the role of the attorney in the transitional society. You know, is just thinking about questions of if if we could come up with a thing we called socialist jurisprudence you know mm-hmm. um because you would think the independent nature of being an attorney um 
which you know whose whose sole obligation is to the client you you know in in terms of bourgeois law and bourgeois right that seems to be a pretty critical part of it but i guess if you're a public defender you are an employee of the state right right and and, I, and i'm also subject to at, at least in a bourgeois legal system i'm subject to the uh the licensure penalties that go along with um mistakes with blowing off my obligations to the client or my obligations to the court so i mean if i if i just say fuck it i'm not going to court anymore uh i i won't just i'll I'll have grievances not just from my clients but from from judges from prosecutors who see erratic behavior and then they'll report that conduct to the state bar and then my license is in jeopardy and that kind of stuff happens all the time um particularly because you know things like alcoholism and drug addiction are super high uh um for and for for lawyers compared to other professions um so i mean there are a lot of like things over a lawyer's shoulder particularly in the criminal defense context that i think aren't in 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 other contexts where a person owns a business and employs people and they create a product or they provide a service it's it's just it's just strange um it's a a a very strange type of alienation i guess yeah i mean when you look at the alienation that draws the lower layers of the petty bourgeoisie so quickly and fervently into the arms of the fascist movements in the interwar period. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that that these people can be either pulled in one direction towards fascism or in another direction towards like the uh the cause of the proletarians. And it, you know, and if you look at the revolutionary movements of the 20th century, the you know, the, the Bolsheviks are full of lawyers, you know. Just Tons of lawyers in the leadership of the Bolshevik Party, and tons of lawyers joining the fascists in Germany and Spain and Italy. Um, it's a a profession that lends itself to be pulled in two directions at once, right. uh, as far as class loyalties are concerned. But but Jason, you mentioned the sort of if there if there can be a Marxist jurisprudence, if there can be sort of a socialist jurisprudence, then you know what's what's the role of the lawyer in this kind of idealized model um and i mean that was one of the things at the heart of 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 the debate after october 1917 is is how do we resolve disputes and you we talked about it briefly in the last show but these two competing spheres a guy named pashukanis and a guy named uh, peter stuka um had had competing ideas and Pashukanis believed in, in this, in establishing sort of this law of the transition period. Um, whereas Stuka, his position was you have just abolish everything. We, we, we start from scratch. We, we, we learn what the law is in the making of the society. And so Stuka's idea, and it was the one that, that won out at least, um, at least early on, was that there were no more judges, there were no more lawyers, any any member of the party in good standing or any working class person in good standing could be a representative for a person accused, could be a prosecutor against a person accused, or could be 
a judge to resolve a dispute. And there was no, um, there was no uniformity across, across Russia. Everything was just sort of decided and determined on an ad hoc basis. And in fact, people who did have knowledge, uh, people who, who, who could have been useful as lawyers for, you know, for mitigating, for, not, uh, for, for resolving disputes, those people were, were distrusted and were considered counter-revolutionary. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why Pashikanis ends up, ends up, <laughs> ends up dead. So, I mean, uh, trying to understand the role of lawyers is, is in a, in an idealized, um, Marxist legal system to the extent that there can be one is, is difficult because no one's really ever done much of the work to try to understand our role in that society. It's an interesting thing to consider. Um, because I guess, you know, if you want to, you sort of can be sympathetic to the notion that in the, in the moment of, in the moment of rupture, it's, it's really easy, I think, to, to see why people would be like, let's toss everything out and build the world anew. Um, but, you know, I, with, with the hindsight that we have on the way that things went, you know, I don't think that there's a whole lot of really useful debate that can be had about whether or not there is a transitional society, because I think there is, right? We, we had one, we saw one, and it ultimately it didn't complete the transition. So constitutions, uh, legal precedent, um, discussions about art, you know, cult- culture, uh, just about everything. I think you know, that's is that's a neo Kautskyist ar- uh, argument. I mean, I think, I, I, I just think that if we want if we want to be dialectical in our thinking, I think we've got to acknowledge that, like, in trying to construct everything anew, that we're also go- in resisting the old and constructing the new, that we're going to find what we're able to come up with as being somewhat sometimes impregnated with elements of the old, even in new forms, right? Like on a higher form or whatever. It's always, a, in, always impregnated with the old. I, 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 frankly, I think the 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 whole debate was uh, not not had in good faith. I, I you know, I, I think it was a really a debate between um, the the rule of law. You know, uh, on the one hand, uh, advocate advocacy for the notions of the rule of law, and the on the other hand, just the arbitrary dictate of uh, party bureaucrats, which was not you know, an attempt to construct socialist law so much as a, an attempt to say, you know, uh, uh, get rid of these uh, hurdles in my way of accomplishing uh, the things that I'm trying to accomplish, which, I, you know, I, you can look at the United States during the Revolutionary War and its immediate aftermath and the Civil War and its immediate aftermath where, uh, you know, things that we think of today as fundamental constitutional rights or whatever were just disregarded in favor of expediency of like winning um, uh, a wartime moment. Uh, And that's, you know, that that can be understood in that context. But, uh, you know, I think it's more a function of the degeneracy of war communism than it is. Uh, an actual intellectual debate between one or the other position. Uh, the Marxist dialectics is not one wherein the thesis-antithesis pr- uh, conflict produces uh, something that has n- no uh, semblance of anything that came before it, but it, it uh, is 
always and everywhere the synthesis is constituted in the the conflict of the thesis and antithesis. Yeah, people always forget about the negation of the negation, and that's just child's place, huh? <laughs> so, I mean, what ends up happening in practice is that the um, the institutions of the czarist state are essentially just renewed once the Bolsheviks realize that they need something to to govern uh, while they figure out how to set up a socialist state. So you end up having all these czarist bureaucrats and like, you know, mid-level apparatchiks and petty bourgeoisie just being allowed back into positions of, you know, uh, power in order to make things run. And uh, there's actually a whole hell of a lot less of the smashing of the state that goes on than, than one might have be led to believe happened after reading the state and revolution, you know? Um, and that's because you didn't have a theory for, and you didn't have discussions about what the immediate transitional government is going to look like outside of power being given to the Soviets. But, but it does make sense because uh, I mean, you, we, we mentioned sort of the, the founding and the, at least of America and we think of, of our founders as, you know, revolutionaries, at least that's what we're taught to think of them as. But when peasant uprisings were occurring in the colonies that weren't in keeping with the strategy of our revolutionary founding fathers, they were more than happy to use the courts to use um, sort of the proto-police. Uh, they didn't really have police back then. Uh, but to use the oh, courts of arm of the they had slave catchers. <laughs> but I mean, they were, they were happy to use the coercive arm of the state in order to keep um, peasant revolts from conflicting with whatever their strategy was. They were they were very sure to um, to keep a tight grasp on the direction of the revolution, uh, which, of course, kind of dictated the consequences of the revolution, which were things like the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. There's a reason why the documents that were created came out of those particular people. There's a reason why, you know, a guy like Thomas Paine isn't a signer of the Declaration of Independence, isn't, wasn't part of the Constitutional Convention, because, you know, those, those people uh, that, that had actually radical ideas were, were marginalized, and the founders were more than happy to use the legal system as a mechanism to... Um, to make sure that those people didn't um, didn't disrupt the social order that they were trying to establish. Yeah, the legal system is, in all of its forms, a uh, mechanism for the rule of one class over the other, and it makes sense that in the transitional society, the dictatorship of the proletariat, that the legal system would be created and wielded. For the domination of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie, you know, just like if when we think of the state, what is the state? The state is, you know, outside of special bodies of armed men, it's a structure, the legal structure and the rules that go that delineate what that special body of armed men is allowed to do in order to enforce its authority. As long as there's a necessity of a state, there will be a necessity to have rules governing that use of force so you know we would necessarily need a socialist uh 
theory of law. Well, with respect to kind of Stuka's idea and and the decision to sort of eliminate um, <clears throat> lawyers as the only person that can represent a party in a dispute, uh, the the idea is is sound because in America we have this byzantine legal system that it that is designed intentionally to keep lay people from being able to interpret it and use it to their advantage um there's a there's a reason why absolutely it it it, it took so long for gideon v wainwright to happen which gave criminal defendants the right to counsel in criminal cases uh and to this day there's still no what's called civil gideon there's still no civil right, right. to counsel in civil cases and so although the the, is, I, I should ma- make a point on that i should note on that point that that's actually a you know that that is a a site of um social s- sort of resistance uh in, in society currently there are um, successful campaigns in localities like uh, San Francisco, for example, where they um, and I think Los Angeles just recently passed this, saying that uh, all clients or all I'm um, excuse me all uh, people who are being evicted have the uh, are guaranteed the right to uh, representation in the uh, th- through the uh, eviction process in the courts which is a huge advance a huge advance and that it, but it's it's very narrow and it only exists in a particular city it's not like the constitutional right uh, to counsel when before being sent to prison which exists uh, in uh, any location on US soil right right because I'm confronted with this regularly uh, in in the county courts. Uh, because if, an, an eviction is is a matter that gets handled in the county courts. So we're in, in Texas, at least, we're separated between county and district courts, depending on the amount and controversy, nature of the case, things like that. And so um, those eviction cases are handled in county courts. And so when I go in there to represent a defendant on a misdemeanor, often there will be a person in there who's unrepresented, what we call as a pro se, and then there will be a landlord, somebody that, that owns an apartment or a rent house or whatever. And then that person will almost always have an attorney. And then those parties approach the bench and, and make their case. And the person who's unrepresented is at a significant disadvantage throughout that entire procedure. Virtually guaranteed to lose. Uh, absolutely. And I, I, speaking as, as an, uh, a civil attorney, like that, the person who's unrepresented, just, just for the mere fact of not knowing how to navigate the system is virtually guaranteed to lose. And so the idea with eliminating the lawyers, uh, the, the necessity of lawyers in, in resolving disputes during the early days of, 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 the, of the Bolshevik Revolution makes sense because if your idea is we are we are we are scrapping the old and, and instigating the new if you um, necessitate the presence of lawyers of these learned specialists then it's very possible they're going to create a, a Byzantine structure by which you know a per, a just your average, you know, uh, working class person in good standing would not be able to navigate. And that was what they were trying to avoid. They were trying to avoid a situation wherein uh, people wouldn't be able to understand how to uh, resolve their disputes. 
So, I like the idea that every cook can govern, but I think it's probably more accurate to rephrase it as every cook should be able to govern eventually. (laughs) (laughs) You're such an elitist. I mean, shit, man. I just think that the, the bourgeois society has not equipped us to be able to govern. In fact, it has tried as hard as it could, yeah. as hard as it can to make things just the opposite, you know? I'm not equipped to govern. I'm, I can't even govern my own life. I barely pay <laughs> my bills on time. And that's not because I don't have any money. It's because I, for, I just forget, right. you know? I mean, I also don't have any money, but even if I did, I would forget. But you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like... I think that there is a there definitely is a place for that transitional layer of bureaucrats and that are it's inescapable to get past. And I think that lawyers are going to have some kind of uh role. Well, re- the reason why we don't think that every cook can govern is because we live in a horribly atomized alienated version of society, right? Like presumably we have the capacity to you know, make those transformations that, you know, create the situation in which people are a little bit more engaged and a little bit more, you know, whatever, a lot more confident in their ability to or to, to make a contribution on the basis of what they actually feel. Like, you know, everybody who's ever been to any job knows that everybody has an idea or at least a complaint about something that doesn't work right. Um a whole, I mean, that's the a whole lot of of what we uh, think about the world is uh, a, an investment of faith in that in the power of that, right? That everybody suffers under the weight of experts who don't know anything, um, right? Even though, of course, yeah, there are experts who are uh, genuinely expert, right? Like, I don't know anything about practicing law, that's why we're talking to Stephen. The thing that I, I feel like I appreciated most about um, the last conversation with Stephen was that it felt like demystifying the law in a lot of ways. And I think people forget that other than when they're trying to like be witty on Facebook. Like it, it feels like, um, you know, things are run by toddlers sometimes. And that's because it's like creating board game rules, except like the board game is like our society and um, like the people creating rules are the ruling class. Um, And I think people feel like that's above them. And and I think, you know, we've, we've touched on this, like there's a role for expertise when it comes to like figuring out how to govern and, you know, what that, that looks like for workers and in a worker state, um, whether transitional or not. But um, I I think that's been a really helpful thing for me, um, trying to to grasp things. And I I appreciate that. And thank you, Stephen. (laughs) I I actually think that that's a really excellent analogy because so, um, so, so think of it like this. Uh, you, the average layperson pulls out uh, the average layperson in, say, Rawls's original position. Okay, he pulls out the Monopoly board and he looks at the board. Okay, doesn't know the rules, just sees the board. He can see the real estate. He can see 
the go to jail square. And that's a, a pretty, um, you know, uh, s- significant square on the monopoly board. If you're looking at it as a layperson without ever having known the rules. And then you have these other people who sit in the legislature, who sit in black robes, uh, who work in these courthouses, who created these rules and have them and written them in, in such a way that, that the people who just stare at the board will never have um, access to interpreting those rules in a way uh, that will allow them to meaningfully affect their um, their predicament. Sure. Yeah, I think we touched on that a little bit in the last episode we did where I asked you, Stephen, like, do you think that the law is made to be uh, as complex as it is in order to sort of just mystify it and to keep the layperson from being able to understand it? And I think that you said, yeah, to a certain extent, yes, but if not the law, then definitely procedure. Yeah, and that and that's what I mean by the board game, by taking Jenny's analogy is is looking at the 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 board looking at monopoly itself you can kind of intuit what's right and what's wrong what you what you can and can't do uh but the rules for navigating how to get there the procedure those procedural rules whether it's civil or criminal procedure those are written up in a very arcane way to create things like time limits like if you go to a go and have a trial and you lose if you don't understand, you may understand the crime that you were charged with. Let's say that you're charged with murder and you lose your trial and you understand all of the elements of, 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 of murder, knowingly and intentionally, you know, cause the death of person X. You know that you understand that intuitively. What you don't understand and what you're never going to understand intuitively is that you have 30 days from the day you lose that trial to tell the court that you want to appeal that decision to a higher to, to the next level. Those are the procedural rules. And the average layperson isn't able to intuit, you know, when they have to file a notice of appeal. What does the effect of filing a motion for a new trial have on those deadlines? When is the appellate brief due? Uh, how many or for or in civil court? How many questions am I allowed to ask the opposing party in interrogatories? What is like, an appellate brief, for example? <laughs> exactly. And so there's there's so much that um, I mean, you you just naturally understand that murder is wrong. I said naturally, um, intuitively understand that that murder is wrong and bad, uh, theft is wrong and bad. Uh, but navigating that criminal system is totally arcane. Sure, and that's. That's the problem with, um, like the like, liberal owning it, that like these people are stupid, um, like both the people legislating and like people interpreting law. Like they're not stupid. Like when something, you know, like a headline breaks that that feels really um, barbaric or awful, um, you know, the response is often to like call these folks stupid. Um, but the issue isn't that they don't know the consequences. They're, I feel like they're incredibly aware. And, you know, chalking it up to, like, folks not being intelligent when, you know, I, and, you know, that, and then and then if you try to frame it that way with libs, it's like, well, you think people are, like, sitting in a room and, like, plotting? And it's like, I mean, yeah, um, I, I think... 
<laughs> I, yeah. I, I, th- I think that. Yeah, a lot of times. Sometimes people sit in a room. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm, when you talk about uh, people being stupid, are you referring uh, solely to uh, the, the people that create and interpret these laws? Or are you referring to the way people talk about persons accused? I understood Jenny B is talking about um, the broader public's, uh, you know, lay people reacting to legal news and then technocrats responding to the broader public misunderstanding some technical aspect of what's going on here and uh, regarding the broader public as uh, intellectually inferior and capable of understanding what's going on when reality is... um, you know, they, 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 they understand on a gut level what what justice is. I think that, like, the R- RBG worship d- really does illustrate sure. how people are just... <laughs> <laughs> well, so I definitely, you know, having interacted, luckily here in, 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 in my neck of the woods, I, I don't have quite that problem, but, but taking cases in other counties particularly in other counties where the judge, the person who's deciding. So if, if I have a case in a county court in some random rural county, there's a decent possibility that the judge that's sitting on the bench that's going to decide these complicated questions about whether a stop was legal or whether a search was legal, that person may not be a lawyer. They may have no idea what I'm talking about. And what they do is, is they look at their prosecutor because they got elected about the same time they did. They know that person and they look for them for cues about what to do. So if I have a complex issue about whether or not there was probable cause to make a stop for a certain offense or to make an arrest for a certain offense, and I have this this legal precedent that, that kind of spells out why I'm right, if that judge is a layperson, is not a lawyer, and has a personal relationship with the prosecutor and does not have any personal relationship with me, then just as a matter of consequence, the judge is going to take the prosecutor's word for it. And that's a constant problem that we run into in every county, not just in terms of the judge not being smart or being stupid or whatever, is the judge taking for granted that what the prosecutor is saying is accurate or in more more perniciously what law enforcement is saying is accurate um odor of marijuana will allow an officer to search your car you know from you know hood to trunk every every inch of it if they say that they have the odor of marijuana and you will almost never find a judge that says I don't find this officer credible on that issue. I don't believe that this officer actually smelled marijuana. They'll never say it. Never. And so, and so if the judge believes the officer's credible and that they, and that they had odor of marijuana, that's going to justify the entire search of the vehicle. And if they find any contraband in that vehicle, then that search is going to be upheld. Whether or not they found marijuana, as long as the officer articulated the odor of marijuana, which gives him reasonable suspicion to search the car for contraband, that search is going to get upheld. And so because the courts and because the prosecutors interact so much more with law enforcement than defense attorneys do, defense attorneys have sort of this antagonistic relationship with the police 
uh, at least most of us do, and perhaps mm. me more so than others. Uh, but the judges and the prosecutors don't have that relationship by and large. Uh, it's rare whenever there's a conflict between the judge and law enforcement or the prosecutors and law enforcement. Uh, so, I mean, so it's, it's just a constant problem that I think a lot of judges and a lot of um, elected officials, I think there is a lot of incompetence, but I think a lot of that incompetence um, gets commingled with uh, uh, bad faith and that sort of, you know, reacts to our detriment. So this to me is an example of why um, we can have a critique of bourgeois right and then also uh, argue for the a place for it, for the extension of bourgeois right, um, of the concept of rights, even in as much, even in as we struggle for a society which, in which something like law and right and you know the state uh, are superfluous, because there I think we have we have so many habits built in and so many sort of expectations about how law um, functions and what it's for, and you know it should be able to have the right. Uh, and I say this again with a critique of bourgeois right, but I should have the right um, to to say you can't search my car, you have no probable cause, and. You know, that's that's a notion that was instilled in me, and it's a bourgeois notion, but it's one that still works to my benefit, right? And especially if it can be extended. And uh, if you have a right to have the smell of marijuana or whatever, you know, like then I, I don't have a really fully articulated point here. I just mean to say that the, the experiences that people have with law enforcement um, show, I think pretty clearly the need to extend the notion of right until you don't need it anymore even though i think we also want to do away with law enforcement you know but i think we have to the the conversation about how you actually get there and what the what the conditions for such a thing are um it's just more complicated i think and then i don't like it you know like oh i fucking hate the law and i hate the state and like yeah i think we all do but uh but how do we build uh the way that we get to the place where you don't have to talk about bourgeois right anymore is, I don't think it's a singular instance. Hey, Jason, remember when that cop smelled marijuana when we were driving and they totally ripped apart my car? That's right, yeah. And like left everything on the side of the road? Uh, it, they must have smelled it but, from uh, whenever you were in the ninth grade. It was just lingering still. No, yeah, it, it's still there. It's been like, I hadn't smoked since I was it, 15. It happens all the time. And um, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of stuff like that, like the, the, um, the field test kits for, to test, to test drugs in the field, these little kits that law enforcement have, you can pour powdered sugar in those kits and they'll return positive for shit like methamphetamine. Um, the intoxilizers that gets installed in a person's car after a DWI, if you drink a milkshake, you're going to go, you're going to blow hot for what that machine thinks is alcohol. And so, we have a system that that sort of takes for granted that that people are telling the truth and that the the machines that we've created to help us determine credibility we take for granted that those things are are accurate um but jason mentioned you know uh, not liking the police and so a goal is to do away with the police and we talked about it last time and i think we have sort of like a a similar vision 
about the courts, but it's it's not necessarily that we want to abolish the concept of of um, mediate of mediating disputes or the con the concept yeah. of um, uh, I guess watching out for each other, which would be something akin to I guess what police in, in an idealized fashion would do. Uh, it's just the actual the the material reality of what that sort of thing would look like is is we're not in a position where it's possible to envision it and so like the courts for instance we have we have very complex relationships and our relations our our own personal interrelationships are only getting more and more complicated as we become more and more inter interconnected um not just to our friends but to but to strangers to our 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 bosses to, to everybody our relationships are are infinitely more complicated and and um and fraught with potential for conflict than they were in say you know feudal times and so i i i think there's always going to be a role for uh for mediators and to the extent that the courts sure. can be mediators we're always going to have need for people who i mean you know let's face it are smarter than i am to help me understand how to resolve conflict um i mean i <laughs> smarter I mean, than you i i don't know the solution you know to uh to running a vehicle on on 100 renewable energy i have to defer to people that that understand the complexities of that arrangement um and so I, I think there's always going to be value in deferring to people who have a particular expertise in uh mediating disputes i mean that's why counselors and therapists and psychologists yeah. and psychiatrists and that's why those people exist because they've developed a specialty in in being able to to mediate um in, in internal issues and the courts sort of mediate uh, uh, interrelational issues. I struggle with this a lot um, because at my core, I'm um, punk as fuck. Um, <laughs> and I, I too hate authority. Um, and um, I know what a lot of folks know, which is that like all cops are bastards, etc., etc. Anything that you can put on a pin um, I believe it in, in my heart and soul. I'm generalizing, you know, not anything. You know what I mean? You know, Hashtag I, not all cops are <laughs> that's, that's slander. Um, so can you, can someone interpret the law for me? Is that slander? Um, anyway. Um, so, slander per se. Yeah. So at any rate, but, but also having lived in, and spent so much of my like formative years in really awful um, parts of the city at the peak of like 90s gang violence, um, having been a survivor of, you know, sexual and domestic violence, um, you know, having been hit by cars three times. Um, we love being a cyclist in Corpus Christi, Texas. <laughs> I'm, yeah, dude, what the fuck? Yeah, my life's been wild, right? Um, I... I You've been it's, hit by so many it's cars. It's truly bullshit. Um, and the elderly don't deserve to drive, um, <laughs> which is why we need public transit. It's, listen, this this conversation could go a lot of places right now. I'm going to try to stay on track. Um, 
you know, I, I, I never been hit by a train. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> point being that, that I really think that conversations like the one that we're having that, that shift to like, how, how do we do this? How do we begin to, you know, think about conflict resolution within our own spaces? Um, much less like, you know, on a larger scale. Um, it, like I said, it's something I, I really struggle with because I obviously don't believe the solution are cops. Um, and I don't have a lot of faith in the court system because of my lived experience. Um, but it, it scares me to think how truly unprepared the left is to take take this on. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of, of um, I, I guess, what, what we might refer to as the imaginary. Um, we've, we've sort of um, given up on the ability to, uh, to imagine a broader horizon because the people that keep getting elected, uh, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, are telling us that these things, they're not realistic, they're not possible. And so we're in sort of this perpetual state of, 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 uh, of arrested development because we've, we've lost our ability to, to, uh, to imagine um, a better future. And, and so you talk about you know, not being able to, to, to trust the cops and not being able to put faith in the courts. And so I, I, I think that that kind of segs nicely into that this, this third phase of the American tripartite justice system, which is, is um, what, what I refer to in the article as corrections, but it, what, what is essentially this, this combination of, of prisons, probation, parole, community supervision, as it's referred to. Um, and uh, one of the things was th- that I, I think was interesting because in a, in, a, in a court, you got two options for determining what the result of your case is going to be. Go to the judge or go to the jury. And either a judge can decide what your punishment's going to be if you lose, or you can ask the jury to decide what your punishment's going to be if you lose. And one of the things that Pashikani's talked about and um, in his general theory of law and Marxism, and I'll just sort of um, read straight from him. But it was the idea that um, if in place of punishment, we substitute treatment, that is to say a concept of medical health, what follows is entirely different since then we would be interested not primarily in whether the punishment fits the crime, but in whether the measures taken are adequate to the goal set, that is, whether, those, whether they are adequate to the protection of society to having an effect on the offender and so forth. And so our, our present decision-making tree for how to, um, how to deal with crime isn't medical health-centered. It's not rehabilitative-centered. The idea is not to heal the community, to heal the offender. The idea is, is primarily uh, figuring out how to quantify um, a person's consequences. And so Pashikanis goes on. He says, in principle, punishment in keeping with guilt represents the same form as retaliation in proportion to the injury. Its most characteristic feature is the arithmetical uh, expression of the severity of the sentence. So in so many days, weeks, and so forth, deprivation of freedom, 
so-and-so high a fine, loss of these or those rights. Deprivation of freedom for a period stipulated in the court sentence is the specific form in which modern, that is to say bourgeois capitalist, criminal law embodies the principle of equivalent recompense. This form is unconsciously, yet deeply linked with the conception of man in the abstract and abstract human labor measurable in time. And this is key. It is no coincidence that this form of punishment became established precisely in the 19th century. While prisons and dungeons did exist in ancient times and in the Middle Ages too, in addition to other means of physical violence, but people were usually held there until their death or until they bought themselves free. For it to be possible for the idea that to emerge that one could make recompense for an offense with a piece of abstract freedom determined in advance, it was necessary for all concrete forms of social wealth to be reduced to the most abstract and simple form to human labor measured in time. And that is, that's essentially how we determine what a person's sentence is going to be. It's, it's the value of, of the damage measured in, uh, in, in a determinant uh, loss of time. So in federal court, we have these things called the sentencing guidelines, which used to be mandatory. And it was, it was complicated, but more or less, you could figure out what statute you were charged with violating, go to the sentencing guideline. That sentencing guideline would tell you what your offense level was on a scale of, of one to 40. And then you would, on the other side, you would have your criminal history category based on how many prior offenses you had committed. And then you would find the cross section of your offense level and criminal history category. And that would be your sentence. We were able to quantify that, that tra uh, trafficking drugs is worth this many years of human life, that committing murder was worth this many years of human life. That's very Napoleonic. That's the way the Napoleonic code is. And consequently, the entire continental law system now. Well, at, well, and 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 none of it's possible unless you re reduce humanity to uh, their their you know use value. Yeah, and and I think what was really important about um, what you said when you started talking is like thinking about um, like what is the the intended role of all of this. Um, if not to like heal, um, each other. And I think most importantly, what you said was the way you said it was heal the, our communities. Um, and you know, I, I didn't, I definitely don't want to leave folks with the impression that I'm, uh, discounting the real work that people are doing and the really hard conversations that people are having, um, especially in the wake of this, um, me too moment, you know, uh, like I said, it, it's really important to me that, that there are folks who are taking this seriously um, and that aren't just using words like transformative and restorative justice as ways to like bludgeon people into like silence and, and say that they are a solution without actually talking concretely about what those things could mean. And also like working to, to, put those things into action, even if it's messy sometimes, even if we're learning as we go, right? And I think that the best example for me of this is 
uh, Mariam Kaba came out with a, a workbook from AK Press. And I think the title is really brilliant, actually, because it's called Fumbling Towards Repair, a work a workbook for community accountability facilitators. And it needs to be truly mandatory for anyone who has ever um, uttered the words transformative or restorative ju- justice in a Facebook argument or in um, a Slack conversation or, you know, anywhere else, really. Because, um, I mean, A, it's beautifully written. B, it's beautifully illustrated. And C, the the folks leading these conversations about, like, how we do heal one another and our communities are people of color whose, whose language, and, and largely women of color, right, whose language is being taken as usual and then bastardized and not even, and, and, you know, their ideas and the work that they've put in isn't actually being taken serious, seriously, because, you know, those, those, those are words we're using, but outside of these spaces and, you know, people who are, um, you know, having these conversations in a more meaningful way, it, it, it's, they're not actually things we're, we're doing, not even in a way that that's ugly and messy. I, I think that um, in, in having these conversations about wrongs that have that, that have been committed. I think that as Marxists, we have to reject carceral leftism, this idea that, that, that prison is a place for people when it's, it's, it's just not, there's no good, the and idea. And just an addendum, since, not just like carceral, but just like punitive. No, I, 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 and I'm thinking of carceral, not just in terms sure. of, of penal institutions, but in terms of like um, complete social ostracization. So I mean, yeah. making somebody a, a, a prisoner of, of their own of their own mind of their own yeah. home uh, because they they can't um, depending on the nature of the infraction they can't operate in a polite society and so one thing that is important is it it is important to make sure that um, certain beliefs are incapable of being held in polite yeah. society that's why it's important to be. Uh, publicly anti-racist because it, we have to create an environment in which it's impossible to function in your daily life as a racist. You cannot get out of your house and go to the store as a public racist because we've created a society in which that sort of behavior is intolerable. Sure. But when the racist stops being racist, we don't have a a a system or um, understanding of one another such that we can allow that person to to re-enter polite mm-hmm. society once they've um, eschewed their uh, their you know their previous behavior. So you don't you don't think yeah. the Twitter pylon is a good substitute for uh, traditional bourgeois notions of ret- retribution and punishment? I, I find myself making this argument um, a lot when I'm talking with. Um, People online who are trying to cancel all the bands that have ever had a problematic member because you'll have, you know, said black metal band toured with another black metal band that turns out ended up being a secret Nazi band. And that band will be like, look, we are not Nazis. You know, none of our none of our members are involved in the, you know, National Socialist black metal scene or anything like that. And 
uh, you know, we don't have anything to do with that. We are not Nazis. And then everyone's like, yeah, but like they probably secretly are because they didn't come out against that hard enough. It's like, yeah, but I mean, if the point is to force people to publicly say, look, no, we are not Nazis. We are against that. Then whenever they do that, we should be like, okay, well, cool. You know, you're okay now. We can continue listening to you. Otherwise, what's the fucking point of calling people out? If you give them no uh, incentive for behaving in polite society as a, a normal integrated person who is not racist, once they've been called out, then uh, it's, it, it's essentially, I, I'm not 100% I'm not down with the argument that the uh, Twitter callouts and Tumblr uh, leftism no. helped create the alt-right, but I think that there is an element of truth to that. That the the toxic culture of uh, callouts and pylons just leads people to want to completely reject the entirety of the leftism because they hate these extreme annoying bits of it so much. And of course, people are, that doesn't cause people to become alt-rightists or whatever. I mean, I definitely think that there's. I, I don't want to say there's no value in the Twitter pylon. I don't want to say that there's no value in, in the call out. I think that there is because we, we do have to create an environment in which it is utterly intolerable for a racist to exist in, in polite society. Um, but we also have to create a mechanism by which that person once rehabilitated can, can reenter. So if, you know, the, the analogy you use of, of, of the band that had the bad member, and so they, they kick that bad member out. They bring in a new guy who's, you know, who's not a Nazi, uh, but that, that's going to follow them around. And then they break up and they, they each form their own other completely separate band. And then all of the sudden, you know, uh, Pitchfork puts out an article like, hey, uh, drummer from the ex-Nazi band is now in, you know, like <laughs> a posse youth crew band. But remember that time back when he was shit? I think it's also just about like having a sense of proportion, right? Um, and it's just not the case that everything is equal and carries the same weight, right? So there, there's a difference between what the pylon should look like when we're calling out fucking Brett Kavanaugh versus like some person in a in a mostly irrelevant punk band or something. Um, or even like someone who does hold some power, like Dave Chappelle, but it's is in in terms of <laughs> the way things are structured, it, that's not the same. Like the weight of our Twitter voice or our actual voice, I, I just I just don't think it's and it's the case that it it, it needs to be louder <laughs> um, when we're talking about like the person in your union who like used a racial slur um, versus, you know, someone who literally carries a tremendous amount of political power, like fucking Joe Biden. Right. Right. Um, and, and I know people are like, well, we can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time and that's all fine, but we're not doing that. We're attacking each other um, oftentimes. And, and I don't want this to, to come off as a rant against cancel culture, because I think just like with most other things there, there's initially was a usefulness to what it meant to cancel someone. And, and 
it's taken on different forms. Um, certain iterations of it, you know, I, I, I think are really venomous um, and not at all moving us closer to repair, right? Um, but but it is to say, you know, that, that we're not focusing our efforts, um, our voices, our actions on actually bringing people in um, and calling out people who, who actually are, are shaping things. Yeah. I mean, it's what's, what's been most clear in the, in the age of Twitter is that if there's effectiveness in, in the call out and I, and I think that there, 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 ha, there is some effect that there is some use to it, but it's, it's really only effective on our own side uh, because we're no matter how many Twitter call outs we do of Donald Trump, he's, I mean, he, he's still the president because yeah. um, our negative opinion of him, uh, our, our framing of him in online spaces doesn't affect um, the, the interests of, uh, of capital. Whereas, you know, it became uh, financially untenable for Milo Yiannopoulos to have a platform. Um, it's, it's never going to be financially untenable for Joe Biden to have a platform for Brett Kavanaugh to have a platform. So, I mean, you know, we can, we can do the, 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 the pile on to, you know, our, our own comrades and and they'll leave Twitter and we may never hear from them again, but what did we accomplish? Uh, I gotta say, we accomplished doing some fucking cop work for free (laughs) is what we accomplished. I was going to say, I, I kind of feel like, you know, for all the discussion that exists on the left about whether or not or how much you can use the state um, in a transitional way in a, in, in terms of the, the long march of the institutions or whatever, that the, the truly hopeless utopianism is that we can use Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His twi- Twitter I've is been, not a tool I've been for reading, justice. I've been reading a lot about uh, the CIA's, uh, what is it called, chaos program in the United States where they – used any means available to disrupt organizing and uh you know of course fbi had cointelpro and we kind of just skip we we kind of we we don't really talk about chaos though but chaos was you know the fbi using these same people that they used in in uh indonesia south vietnam chile to train torturers and you know set bombs and cafes and to assassinate leftists, bringing them home to the United States to run black ops on fucking up leftists. And I got to say that when we behave the way that we have behaved on the internet since, you know, the mid 2000s, that we're just doing fucking COINTELPRO and chaos work for well, free. That's, you know? that's neoliberalism, right? It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's We've internalized. Individualized. Yeah, we we've internalized the logic of the dominant affect. Yes, it is chaos. Um, well, and those people, those torturers, whatever, should go to jail. Well, I mean, so there's, there's, there's um, <laughs> edgy Jason. Boom. There are a lot of reasons why people. Um, so doing the call out is is cathartic, right? Um, Talking about the poor behavior of someone else, it can be a cathartic experience. Um, what it can also do is misdirect your rage, and so uh, we're we're 
kept in a position where we're constantly attacking one another because nobody that actually resides in a position of power has anything to lose from us attacking each other. So if we make sure this or that leftist can never, you know, write in a, in a magazine or write for a website again, like that doesn't really have any material financial effect on the people that actually, you know, move the levers of power. And that's the problem that we have with, with the prison system, the actual, the actual literal prison system is that it is, there's a profit motive to ensuring that people stay in custody. Um, I, I talk about it a little bit in the article, but there were situations where uh, the CCA, which is a, a private prison group, and there are others like GEO Group, um, they had uh, prison occupancy taxes. And they, what they would do is they would buy all of, they would, it, they would give a bid to the state to buy all of the prisons in that state. And then they would run them privately. Uh, and the state had to guarantee a certain amount of occupancy in those prisons so that the prison would be able to see a return on their, uh, on their investment. They would be able to make money off of, they would be able to get their money back from that bid basically. And if the, um, the population, that prison population ever dipped below what the state guaranteed would occupy it, then the citizens of that state would in turn pay additional, uh, in I guess, property taxes uh, to make up for the lack of occupancy. And uh, it was it was referred to as, uh, I talk about it briefly in the piece, it was in Colorado where they were forced to make up the difference of $2 million as a result of empty prison beds. And it was referred to as the uh, low crime tax. It was a uh, taxpayer indemnification practice where the taxpayers had to make up for the loss of income as a result of these empty beds and some prison in the middle of Aspen. So like, fuck capitalism, <laughs> right? But, but whoa, like, whoa. really, <laughs> really though, like, fuck America. Dude. <laughs> like, Chris what the fuck? Very hot takes. What is wrong with us? It's a hot take. No, <laughs> no. I mean, like, yeah, I remember, uh, when I used to say things like, well, you know, I really like the fucking public transit in uh, Germany because uh, blah, 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 blah. And I would have uh, other, other, you know, trots in the ISO and stuff to, like, tell me, oh, yeah, but they're capitalists, too. You know, there's there's no difference. You know, this is you, you can't you can't idealize the, the social democratic gains of of Western Europe because it's just deflecting how terrible capitalism is as a whole and i'm like no dude fuck america seriously private prisons dude all right we we have a particularly particularly deranged heartless and pathological disregard for anything that doesn't turn a profit right i t was taking some notes um during the last bit uh steven and tell me if i have your if summarized your position effectively it's a Twitter is COINTELPRO, catharsis is counter-revolutionary, arrest the cops. <laughs> that That is 100% accurate, as particularly the bit about catharsis. I think catharsis is absolutely counter-revolutionary. Well, they were like that band. They were super into uh, crime think. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah so they were counter-revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, dude. Catharsis fucking rips. That band <laughs> yeah. is so good. 
but I, I you know, I, I, I do subscribe to the idea that that crime is a necessary byproduct of capitalism. It's it's inner it's ineradicable. Um, the system puts us in a position where um, often, particularly for those without means, uh, is 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 a last resort. It's it's often the only way I'm able to feed myself. I mean, I can't tell you how many homeless people I have represented in court for criminal trespass. Um, and there's no defense to it. They were trespassing. They knew that they weren't supposed to be there. They were the, they were there, but they, they didn't have anywhere else to go. And so, I mean, so they, they get arrested, they get charged with criminal trespass and I'll, I'll end up appointed to a guy and he'll have like 15 prior criminal trespass cases because he keeps getting, you know, forced to leave wherever it was that he was. And, and 90% of them never mention, you know, a, a correlation between the homeless person's behavior and a loss of business or anything there. There, no one ever says in the offense report, well, that nice white couple didn't come into my restaurant because the homeless guy with the shopping cart was outside. Uh, that that's never that's never in the offense report, and so um, we're also not just put in positions where we don't have a choice. We're also put in positions where we're instructed to um, to envy, to I, I guess lust after material possessions. We you know we have we we've created this sort of hyper commercialized um, way of interacting with one another. Uh, and so it's difficult as a young person to go to high school and, and not have an iPhone right now. I mean, it, it's, it, it's difficult to feel integrated into society when you don't have the same access to, um, to financial stability that your peers do. And so a natural consequence of that is going to be that if I can't, if I can't feel normal in society, by having, you know, the iPhone that all my friends have, then, you know, I just need to, I just need to take it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's why one of my uh, favorite sort of, you know, there's the commonly quoted uh, Eugene Debs line, as long as there's a criminal element, I am of it. You know, it's this like very simple exposition of a deeply profound concept which is that like this society produces the necessity of crime and i oppose it outright or you know there's there's the lenin as long as the state exists there can be no true freedom it's the same thing as so long as the conditions of this society exist so long as there is the need for a coercive apparatus for law for for something like justice then human beings are inherently constrained um I mean, I think I think we we acknowledge the need to fix things here and there, right? But that's why ultimately we're trying to look toward a communist horizon, right? Uh, because otherwise, there will always be crimes, there will always be jails. Well, and I mean, there are constant conflicts in in our understanding of of, of what exactly is criminal. So I I mentioned the guy stealing the iPhone. That's that's you know clear theft that's going to be prosecuted, you know, according to the, the language of the Texas penal code or whatever your penal code is in your particular state. Um, but what is it when you produced the iPhone and weren't paid enough money to own one? 
for some reason that's not prosecuted. But what is it if not theft? And so a a, it's like a property is theft. <laughs> a, a as long as surplus value is extracted from our labor, what I would call theft, as as long as that is a um, necessary goal under the existing mode of production, then there's no way to eliminate crime because the foundation of the capitalist mode of production is predicated on the idea that a theft is going to occur from every worker that sells their labor. Yeah, you d you put a statistic in here about the direct correlation between extraction of surplus value and incarceration. Right, right? it was uh, Michael Lynch in his, uh, um, I, I think it was Michael Lynch in his ra uh, uh, primer on radical criminology, which we, we talked about a, a little bit ago. But, but he basically studied uh, and I'll I'll uh, I'll quote it outright. Um, he he what he thought whenever he sat down and, and 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 did this study is he thought that the rate of imprisonment would be directly correlative to the rate of surplus value. Uh, surplus value is expressed as an empirical measure of of labor's exploitation and alienation, which is derived from you know from from Marx's thought. Uh, he studied that statistical relationship between the rate of incarceration and the rate of surplus value and determined that people became more marginalized economically as the rate of surplus value increased. So as people became more, as their labor became more and more exploited, the more that they were shoved out to the margin, margins. And we see that in real time with wage stagnation uh, and the way that the wealth gap from the 1970s to present has has kept ballooning the the rich are, are getting infinitely more richer and the people that have only the power to sell their labor are in no are, are in no better position than they were in the 1970s and in fact more often they're they're far worse off and what it what it kind of demonstrates is is that as people become more and more marginalized they are left with little options but to engage in in crime in order to um, subvert that marginalization. Uh, that's why people steal things. That's why people, you know, fight. That's uh, I, in a lot of ways. It's why domestic violence occurs because people are people have a a need to control something in their life, and they're seeing their life spiral more and more out of control. And so they turn to the one thing that they feel they can exert influence over, uh, whether it's mentally or physically. Um, and historically, women have experienced that marginalization to their detriment uh, because of the way that we have a hyper-masculine society that doesn't value the labor of women the same way that values the labor of males. Um, in the words of Aladdin, gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat. Otherwise, we'd get along.